All right. It is the week of September 12th, 2022, and this is the Fight Business Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Ogier, and today we're going to talk about Hamzat Chemayev's UFC 279 weight miss and everything that comes along with it. According to comments from Dana White, Chemayev will not be punished for missing weight by nearly 10 pounds, and though it caused a cascade of issues, including rearrangement of the card last minute, that might be best for business. We'll break down everything with Chemayev's weight miss and his particular fines or lack thereof, as well as whether it was best for business to rearrange everything in the way that they did. Then we're going to talk about some comments Ari Emanuel made in front of some Goldman Sachs investors, some interesting points that need to be kind of examined a little bit further by us and looking towards the future of the UFC. Then we're going to do our quick hit section. And lastly, we will cover Triller getting out of the combat sports business. Big news there. It's been a wild ride with Triller. We need to really dive into what's going on with that. With that in mind, you've got timestamps at the bottom as always, and let's go ahead and dive right in. All right, first up, we've got to talk about the one and only Hamzad Shemaev, who came into UFC 279, missed weight by nearly 10 pounds, and caused a cascade of decisions and rearrangements to be made last minute, um, literally within a 24-hour span of time. So Chemayev comes in, weighs, I think, 178 and a half for his bout against Nate Diaz. Diaz refuses the fight, and they rearrange things so that Chemayev ends up fighting Kevin Holland at a catchweight of 180, which works out because Holland was supposed to fight Daniel Rodriguez at a catchweight of 180. Um, you take Li Jingliang, who was supposed to fight Tony Ferguson at 170. He now fights Daniel Rodriguez, which is a bit of a mismatch there, and we'll we'll circle back to because Rodriguez ended up weighing in at 180 and the leech ended up weighing in, at, I think at 171. And then you have the leech's original opponent, Tony Ferguson end up being matched up with Nate Diaz in the main event, which that main event matchup makes way more sense on paper, right? A lot of people were saying the card got better because of this rearrangement, but still things obviously got very chaotic. Um, you have Dana White saying that everybody had a contract, et cetera, et cetera. But, multiple sources confirm that you know I, I, there's plenty of sources out there hawani uh nash a couple other people have confirmed that i've also heard from a source or two that people got paid right it didn't affect their contract but they kind of got a discretionary bonus which makes sense because dana white doesn't want to go out there necessarily and say hey yeah we restructured all these guys contracts it's great mm, that sets a precedent that I don't think white really wants to deal with, which is why he answered uh, the way he did when he was asked about if contracts were changed and things of that nature, bit of a, you know, evading the question type answer, but it is what it is. So again, just pure chaos. This is after a debacle uh, with the UFC 279 press conference on Thursday, which now has the Nevada athletic commission opening an investigation into uh, in terms of how that happened and what's going on with all that. It, it's a mess. Doesn't look great for Chemayev. But the first thing I want to focus on with this is that when asked about it, right, um, Dana White kind of says, you know, this is what we do, et cetera, et cetera. Hints that maybe Chemayev should move up in weight, but isn't going to levy any fines or any real punishment against him. And was, if anything, complimentary to Chemayev. So, this is from an article from Damon Martin over at MMA Fighting, uh, where 
Dana White is saying as quote, uh, we knew he was having trouble cutting weight early in terms of Chimaya, uh, White, Chimaev, uh, White revealed at the UFC 279 post-fight press conference. We knew he was going to miss weight. This all happened and we had to deal with it. I just couldn't wait to get tonight over with. Um, you know, we, here's an interesting quote. We knew as soon as he wasn't going to make weight that the fight wasn't going to happen. Forget about Nate. The commission wouldn't have let the fight happen with that big of a weight discrepancy. You immediately start getting to work to figure it out. Um, that seems interesting to me because you'd think that makes sense until again, you go back to Daniel Rodriguez being matched up with the leech where he weighed in even more than Lee Jingliang did right. In terms of the discrepancy, it was, I think Diaz came in at 171 or 170 and a half and then Shamayev at 178 and a half and leech came in at 171. Rodriguez, I believe came in at one one eighty. Um, might be around 179 and about the same discrepancy. Either way, commission didn't seem to have an issue, right? The commission didn't even seem to have an issue with rearranging all the bouts, which is also wild to think about, and we'll talk about a little bit more here. But back to Jemaya for now. Uh, White said he's an absolute effing freak of nature, and I don't think anybody expected that, especially against Kevin, who's six foot two. This is, of course, talking about how Jemaya finished Holland in round one with submission, just wrestled him, ragdoll him all over the place. To say that somebody expected that, there's no effing way people expected that. I didn't expect that. Um, then goes on to say, when asked about, you know, whether Chabayev should move up middleweight, White says it's a problem. That's a problem that he missed weight. I don't know. We've got to look at it and figure it out. What makes sense is for him to fight at 185, so we'll see. Uh, it is what it is. It happened. We'll go back this week and come up with a plan and probably have him fight at 185. Now, those comments, right, the way if you, if you speak Dana White and, and you read between the lines business wise, that's not saying, oh, he's not allowed to fight at 170 anymore, right? Um, if you've listened to Dana White speak like that in the past, you know essentially he's leaving the door open. He says it because, yeah, it probably does make sense and we'll probably have him do this. But if there's a lucrative reason for him to stay at 170, well, then we're going to have him stay at 170 and that goes back to pretty much the entire why Chimaev wasn't fined or why white didn't lambast Chimaev for coming in that heavy i mean it's one of those things we've seen fighters miss weight sometimes by you know three and a half pounds four or five pounds and they just get railed by fellow fighters by uh the ufc by by lots of people and those tend to be fighters, again, that, at least from the UFC's perspective, that are harder to work with when they actually go after said fighters about missing weight. But it's it's kind of nuts when you think about it um, because the discrepancy there, this is eight and a half pounds. This is, this is he probably stopped trying to cut weight or, again, the fact that White knew this was going to happen early, quote unquote, um, you knew for a while he wasn't going to make that weight. And that's a lot to miss by. That's almost a full weight class, right? I mean, you're closer to middleweight than you are welterweight at that point. And we've seen Jemiah fight at both weight classes, um, said there was a medical issue, which is why he couldn't continue to cut the weight. His coach said he was having some issues and, and the doctors essentially told him to stop. But he, I mean, 
really is facing no consequences here. He isn't getting fined. He isn't being forced to fight at 185. If anything, people are still clamoring for him to get a title shot. More of the fans and some of the media uh, turned on Shmaev a little bit in terms of where a lot of them very hyped before they view this as unprofessional and they say it's kind of crazy, especially after the backstage fight and all that. Uh, but it's not surprising White's not going to do anything. Chamayev is a massive draw. Any way you look at it, Chamayev does numbers, right? We know from our own metrics through the media, Chamayev articles, uh, Chamayev videos do well. They do exceptionally well compared to a lot of other fighters. He has taken up the role that Habib did, or had rather, um, you know, and I know those two aren't on the best terms right now, but he has taken that role of being this face of, um, you know, Muslim fighters and Muslim fans, as well as the Dagestani region, the Middle East, all those areas. He is kind of the guy, right? He's the star of that area. They are not going to punish him when they can avoid it. The UFC, it, it just wouldn't make sense. From a business perspective, if you, let's say you find him, right? You might get a backlash from his hardcore fans. Uh, let's say you force him to go up to 185. Let's say White comes out of that uh, post-fight press conference and says, no, he has to fight at 185 now. 185 is going to be tougher for Chemaev in general, just because if he's able to yo-yo between those two weights, right? He's obviously got a strength advantage at 170. We've seen that. And... He's, he's going to lose that when he goes up to 185. He might still be stronger than enough of the middleweights to end up, you know, challenging for a belt, winning a belt, all that. I'm not saying, you know, he's not going to be as successful at middleweight because we've only seen him win so far. But you're still going to lose being the bigger guy most of the time, Right. Um, and and losing the strength advantage when you rely so heavily on wrestling is important. If you can easily overpower someone and have as good a wrestling as Chamayev does, it, it that combo is deadly. And that's why he's just been running through people. Um, save Gilbert Burns. If you lose that strength advantage, you might gas out easier. You might, um, again, end up having people being able to sprawl and block your takedowns just through pure strength, which can obviously greatly affect a fight. That's a big reason why people cut weight. I mean, the, the majority of the reason all fighters cut weight is simply to be the bigger, stronger guy in the octagon come fight night, right? There's no real other advantage to cutting weight. It's if, In fact, it's only a disadvantage because of the pain you have to put yourself through and the wear and tear in your body and we know that it makes you more susceptible to being knocked out because you're more dehydrated. It, there's no other advantage other than being stronger and bigger. So while Tremayev may still find success at 185, 170, if he can make that weight again, or at least get in that range, that's that's a big deal. White knows Tremayev's drawing power. And when all said and done, Chamayev went out and had, again, a fantastic performance against Kevin Holland, which Kevin Holland is not a wrestler. We know he struggled with wrestlers in the past. He looked better than he had um, against previous wrestlers. He's been doing good work, obviously. He's made some made some big improvements. But Chamayev just 
you know, was there every step of the way, just one step ahead of him and, and made it look flawless. That's a big deal. And when you have a performance like that, White's just going to kind of sweep everything you did beforehand under the rug. Also, the fact that the UFC was given a heads up about this, I think makes a big difference as well, right? Um, it's one thing if you walk in two weigh-ins, say you're going to make weight, all this stuff, and then you walk into weigh-ins and you miss completely, and now the UFC is scrambling literally at that moment. It's another to give the UFC a heads up and say, hey, look, I don't think we're going to make make it. I think we're going to come in heavy and probably heavy enough that this is going to put the bout in jeopardy so that Hunter Campbell and White can kind of start talking to people and do what they got to do, right? Um, and kudos to White and Campbell and co. for, for getting everything done. I, I guess a lot of the uh, praise goes to Hunter Campbell to actually arranging the fight, which is is a big deal, but or fights, rather. But you never want to hurt your star player if you can avoid it, right? Think of it like uh, an NFL team, baseball team, what have you. Even though it's not exactly the same because the fighters are all fighting against each other, you you don't want to hurt your star quarterback at fine or, or punish or anything if you can avoid it. If you've got the face of a franchise there, right? Like let's say you're um, Saquon Barkley, who is the face of the New York Giants right now, right? Easily. Uh, you got Daniel Jones kind of, but it's, and if you don't follow American football, you still should be able to get the metaphor. Um, you got Saquon Barkley, who's kind of the face of the Giants organization right now. You do not want to punish him or have him be shown in a negative light if you can avoid it. With the UFC, you have a couple of star players that you never want to highlight badly. Conor McGregor, obviously the biggest one. Big reason why, despite the dolly and all the other stuff, you know, White never came out and and really levied huge fines or, or you know, talked about cutting McGregor or lambasted him. No, it was always like, we got to talk to him. We got to help him. We don't know what's going on. It's the same thing you would see coaches in the NFL do. They might be pissed behind the scenes and being like, what the hell? But in the public eye, they're always going to be like, we're working with so-and-so to make sure that they're doing well and progressing as they need to. Uh, we're trying to make things work here and there and et cetera, et cetera. That's just how it is. You never want to show your star players in bad light because it might turn off fans. It might, you know, cause a rift between you and, and said superstar. You, you really don't want to do that. And Chemayev, again, is the face of that region. So, yes, he apparently caused a press conference fight. And, yes, he missed weight by a ton, but he went out and he performed like he needed to that the UFC can, you know, kind of back him up and be like, yeah, was a mistake. It happened. We'll move forward. Maybe we'll make him go to 185. Maybe we won't. But they're still going to back him. Now, if he goes out and he gets just dominated by Holland or he just looks terrible and it's a super boring fight, I think White comes out in a little, lot more forceful with some of his comments. We've seen White do that before, right? Uh, saying with people who've come out and had boring fights before who don't really draw, saying, you know, they blew it. They, they had your big shot, you blew it. I mean, Probably the biggest example of that is Tyron Woodley is champion, uh, comes out, has that fight against um, Wonder Boy in the rematch. It, it is a pretty boring fight, and Woodley is apparently supposed to fight 
GSP originally and White lambasts Woodley and says, awful work. This is terrible. I'm giving the fight to Bisbing instead. Get out of here. And then that happened. I think if Woodley goes out and he, he flatlines Wonderboy or he's like taking big risks and making it a dogfight, I think he keeps that fight with GSP. But when you go out and have the performance that Chamayev did and you draw as much as Chamayev do, does, it doesn't make sense for White to attack him or to criticize him for his mistakes, even though these mistakes were pretty egregious. Now, in terms of rearranging the lineup, right? Um, this is, again, part of the power of the UFC. The ability to turn on a dime and change three bouts, one of which, again, by White's own admission, they didn't think they'd let the commission do Chamaya versus Diaz. Well, apparently the commission went ahead and did Rodriguez versus the Leech, which, again, that speaks for itself. But to be able to do this talks about the power the UFC has. And yes, people got paid. Um, there's the story going around about how Tony Ferguson got to borrow Hunter's, you know, nice, I think, BMW or Bentley or whatever and drive it around 45 minutes, all that stuff. But still, I mean, in boxing, this would never happen. In most sports, there's no way this would happen. If this happened... It, in boxing, if this scenario happened, people are getting paid and walking away and doing rebooking of their original fights or working out new contracts. They're not saying like, okay, I'm going to take this discretionary bonus and take this guy short notice and see what happens. I mean, there's so much downside. There's so much risk. Look at the leech. He was, especially after how Tony performed against Nate Diaz, you got to assume that Jingliang would have run through Ferguson and it only would have made his stock rise further if he would have gotten his win bonus, maybe even a performance of the night bonus if he was able to knock out Tony or anything crazy. It's hard to say, but he definitely would have been favored to win that fight. Instead, he has a real tough bout with Rodriguez. It is a very close fight. Not going to get into who won that. Um, it's I can see it going either way. I have not rewatched it. I originally had it for Leech, but I mean... It was close. It was very close. Um, but but so he loses, right? He's fighting a guy much bigger and heavier. He loses that fight, so he loses his win bonus. And then he's kicked out of the rankings, and Rodriguez takes his place at 170, which is insane. The fight wasn't at 170, and yet he was 14, and now Leach is gone. That hurts his stock. That makes it much harder for him to climb up the rankings again. Because now he's an unranked guy who needs to call out ranked fighters. And as dumb as the rankings are and all this, yep, I, I'm with you there, all that stuff, it matters in business negotiations. If you are a ranked guy, you want to only be fighting other ranked guys. Yes, maybe you fight down in ranking, like how Sandhagen is going to fight uh, Song Yudong this weekend, sure. But you do not want to take a completely unranked guy. You almost never do. So breaking into the rankings is a pretty hard step. And for him to have done it at true welterweight, then lose a very close contested fight and be knocked out is pretty egregious in my opinion. Um, but that's how it goes. And it, it just shows the power that the UFC has in terms of negotiating leverage over fighters. There's no better example because 
in a sport where they know there's going to be no repercussions or they've got protections in place, fighters are never going to take that deal. You're going to have to really pony up or they'll take it. If you're going to pony up, you know, double, triple their salary easy or a restructure of their contract. Instead, they got a discretionary bonus. Again, I never heard of the, the details from my sources. They just said they got paid never heard what the actual amount was. Um, and I haven't seen it listed anywhere else. Um, through, you know, Hawani or some of these other people. But I mean, it's bad that they're kind of pressured to do this. Because again, imagine a fighter says, you know what? Nah. Imagine Leach says, no, I don't want to take that fight. That's too risky. That then puts him in the bad graces of the promoter, which means that Sean Shelby or McMainer might decide, you know what? Okay, you don't have to take this fight. It's fine. But next time I'm going to put you up against a really tough opponent. And you're just going to have to deal with it. And you're not going to get favorable matchups. You're going to fight somebody unranked anyway. You're going to fight a killer coming up through the ranks. It's it's easily possible that that happens. We've heard from multiple fighters and from the organization itself. If you play ball with the UFC, if you are a quote-unquote company man, you get more opportunities. You get favoritism. We know this is true. We've seen multiple fighters restructure their contract, get paid much more, get uh, commentary gigs, right? I, I can't think of a non-company man in any sort of commentary gig at Fox or ESPN. I can't think of one. I mean, Woodley, I guess, is the only only one, but he was originally champion at the time, and he hasn't really been back since, right? Like he's, I mean, especially since he was released but i mean once he lost the belt i he suddenly wasn't doing commentary nearly as much i don't think that's a surprise i really don't and that's again part of the issue these fighters are definitely pressured to take these short notice fights and the incentive is they'll get a payday they'll also be in the good graces of the the promotion and they may get more opportunities down the line and that's how the business works. Even though, again, Leach ended up getting the short end of the stick in a lot of ways, and maybe the UFC makes it right. It's very possible, but they might not. We've seen them not do that a couple of times. It really depends. So this just highlights, again, the leverage the UFC has. And unless you are a bona fide star or a bona fide draw like Chimaev or McGregor or Adesanya where you have a little bit extra leverage because of what you're able to actually bring to the table you you've kind of got to make these concessions you don't have to but things will be much harder down the line for you if you don't and that's again a major issue within the promotion um let me know your thoughts on the whole weight debacle and weight miss. Are you still a fan of Chemayev? If you were a fan of Chemayev and you're no longer a fan, are you still a fan of him? Are you concerned about his next fight if he tries to fight at welterweight? Do you think he should go up to 185? Do you think it's fair to the fighters who got everything rearranged that you know they should have to kind of, again, change opponent within less than 24 hours and just kind of deal with it? What's your take on all this? Or, or are you just happy? Let me posit this. Are you just happy that the card got better, right? Quote, unquote. Because I've seen a lot of people say, no, I'm, that's the matchups that should have been there in the first place. 
et cetera, et cetera. I mean, are, that let me know your thoughts on all that because um, it, it's very interesting to me. And again, I will cap this off. I didn't want to do a whole segment on it because I talked about Nate Diaz a lot on last week's podcast, but I will cap this off by saying that Diaz now walks away with a big win over a name brand guy uh, and gets to promote himself in a much better light than he would have probably had he gone against Chimaev. So that's a little bit of our, you know, hit to the UFC, but I mean, he's one of the few that benefited. uh, Whereas a lot of the other guys, almost all the other guys did not because even Rodriguez who won, right. Uh, is now calling for a rematch saying it was, you know, cause people are saying he was robbed. Leach was robbed, all that stuff. So promotion ends up winning in this one more than anything. And that is the main takeaway with that leverage, with that power promotion ends up winning after someone who is a bona fide draw really kind of throws a huge wrench into the machine and, they are not punished at all. If anything, they are promoted and given not carte blanche to do this again, but given, you know, a pass in terms of everything that happened. That is rare. And that is very business driven. It's important to understand that. All right. Next thing we're going to talk about on today's show is some comments that Endeavor CEO Ari Emanuel made at a Goldman Sachs uh, conference this past Tuesday. Shout out to Paul Gift, who live tweeted a lot of the important UFC stuff. Uh, Also going to really highlight some key things from a Hollywood Reporter article that focused on it as well. Uh, But again, if you're not following Paul Gift, you need to, especially for the business side of stuff. Um, That being said, let's look at some of these comments. So Ari, you know, talked a lot about premium content. Um some of the, you know, representation and things that WME is doing, uh, as well as, you know, some of the content that they're pushing out for Apple, Netflix, all that, et cetera. But when it comes to the UFC, Ari focused on a couple of key areas. One to highlight is the M&A region, uh, mergers and acquisitions, where we've seen Endeavor in the past really just scoop things up, Right. They've bought a lot of live live event things. They've bought um, professional bull riding, betting areas, minor league teams that they recently just sold a stake in. I think probably because of some of the union uh, negotiations that's going on there, the uh, MLBPA, uh, Player Association, that's, that's getting involved. But maybe not, maybe other reasons. But regardless, we've seen them acquire a bunch of these different companies. And when it comes to M&A... Uh, Ari says this, there is a lot of opportunity in the M&A space, but unless it is going to put a new category up or put a moat around our business, we don't go after it. This is from the Hollywood Reporter article. Uh, Just to specify what a moat is, again, that's where you've got kind of a competitive advantage or you've got a leader in an industry, and then you're adding things to increase your advantage or lead. So if we're talking about the UFC, maybe you end up uh, purchasing some technology that makes stats even better and incentivizes, you know, extra betting and things of that nature, which in that case may increase your competitive advantage of viewership over say Bellator or PFL, what have you. So that's what he means by building a moat. Um, he goes on to say, if it can add to the events business or it can add to the betting business and add for own sports 
or representation, which own sports there is the own sports properties representation. We go after it. Um, that right there tells you Endeavor's M&A strategy. Pretty laid out. It's got to go after events, betting, own sports, or representation. And if you think about it again, all of those service line, product lines, whatever you want to call it, are all adjacent and all make sense in terms of cross uh, division efficiencies and synergies, right? So for example, let's say the UFC buys LFA. Okay, great. That adds to the own sports properties. It gives you a premier feeder league that's now under your umbrella. So it's even easier to put people in to plug and play off of the regionals. Uh, it allows you to not have to buy out contracts from people that are under contracts at other small regional promotions. And then you have to pay a fee in order to get them to come to the UFC. Don't have to worry about any of that. And it, it helps kind of cut some of the costs and also build your roster. I probably at a lower cost basis, right? Cause you're probably going in at five and five K or 10 and 10 K uh, similar to Dana White contingent series. That makes sense. Dana White contingent series in and of itself is a great example of that. Now let's also say you do VIP experience, which is what, um, you know, uh, I forget the name of it now. I'm blanking on the name of the live events, um, uh, company that the UFC bought, but they bought or Endeavor bought rather, but they bought essentially a live special event service to do things like, you know, VIP, uh, experiences and all of that. They're currently using that at apex shows. If you want to buy tickets to an Apex show, you have to do a VIP experience and they use it for the bigger shows as well, right? You get to sit in a special section. You end up getting to uh, take a photograph with the belts, maybe meet some fighters, a special present, all that stuff, depending on the tier of package you buy. But it's a VIP experience and that goes along with going to a UFC event, which is also owned by Endeavor. And let's say you add betting on top of it, which again, they've bought that betting platform, the IMG betting platform, but then you plug that in and you're able to bet on your favorite fights while you're at this VIP experience, while you're attending a UFC live event. All of that money goes to Endeavor, right? That's the kind of synergistic things that we're talking about here. It is their adjacent services and products, but together they form these synergies of a full experience. And you get fans that love that and they come back and they want to do the VIP experience every time and they want to bet on their favorite fights and they want to, you know, do all this stuff, go to as many fights as you can. And all that just is new revenue for Endeavor. And representation, again, you can talk about having fighters sign up with WME representation and then they are able to negotiate particular contracts with the UFC probably more favorable, um, or at least have a slight advantage there. And then again, Endeavor still getting a cut from those fighters winnings. So if you find the next Conor McGregor or Ronda Rousey or who have you, and they're represented by WME, well, you get great deals for them. And essentially you're limiting your costs slash getting revenue back because you're getting a cut of their winnings. And their sponsorships and all that other stuff. That's the type of ecosystem that I've talked about multiple times on the show. That's what that ecosystem looks like. 
And that's a mini ecosystem, right? That's one of several ecosystems they're trying to build in the Endeavor brand. That's just one piece. But that shows you just how all these things correlate and interwork. It's important. So that highlights what Ari is going after pretty explicitly. Now, on top of that, Ari mentions that site fees are becoming a new revenue stream for the UFC. Uh, they're tracking data on how many people come in and out of town. And apparently the number of people that come from out of town is 30 to 40%. That's very big because you can go to a city or an arena or what have you and say, look, we want to host a UFC event here. You're going to have to pay us X amount of dollars for us to do it, which that's how it works. It's not that the UFC pays to go to a particular city. The city generally pays them. That was part of the issue with UFC Hawaii and all that stuff is because the UFC wanted a lot of money to do that. Um, but now they have data that says like the reason why you're paying us and why you should be honored to have us here really is that you'll see that 30 to 40% of attendees. So, you know, couple, several thousand, maybe in the tens of thousands, depending on the arena and area are coming in from out of town, which means that they're adding to economic growth and development right? That's tourist growth. That's tourist revenue for the city. That's extra sales tax. That's anytime you see a big event go into a particular city, they always do an economic development impact type report where they're like, oh, we estimate that bringing in the NCAA tournament added an additional $100 million in revenue to the city of Indianapolis, right? Because we hosted the final four here. Yeah, maybe. I mean, Again, the way it's all broken down is is it's hard to track one-to-one, but either way, that's the type of stuff that a lot of politicians like to see. And revenue in the coffers for cities and states is always a big deal. So essentially, they're saying, look, you're going to pay us, you know, three to four million or whatever, if it's a big city, right? Let's say it's Orlando, which they're doing a show in December. Yeah, you're going to pay us three to four million or five million or whatever it is to come here. But we're going to add an economic impact of 80 to 90 million. So you're net 75. So it's a win-win for everybody. And again, how that exactly translates and all that, it's hard to say. It's not a guaranteed thing necessarily. But the fact that they have data where it's showing 30 to 40% are out of towners, that does make a huge impact. Because if you think about all the things people buy, right? They do hotel reservations, they do food, they go out to bars, they want to see the site. So they might get there a little bit early. And then, you know, if I'm in Orlando, maybe I go to Disney World or I go to um, Universal Studios or something or or downtown Orlando and spend a bunch of stuff, et cetera, et cetera. That's a key piece in how they sell site fees. And the fact they've got this data now is, is huge for them, right? There's a reason Abu Dhabi is paying them so much money to come hold events there and why they've continued to do that. This is just an extension of that. And the fact that Ari is touting it means they're going to raise whatever the site fees are, almost for sure. Especially with that kind of data, that makes sense. You can probably negotiate a pretty higher site fee if you're able to say, yeah, this is going to cost you this, but you're going to get tens of thousands of people in your area for a weekend. That's going to, for some of these cities, it's going to be a big revenue boost, right? Uh, I think about Columbus, you think about um, even Austin, right? I mean, Austin's booming, obviously, but I mean, that, that revenue helps. So it's not shocking 
that they would kind of tout that and look at that as the new revenue stream because they're kind of not hitting a ceiling for their others, but it's it's getting harder for them to get more and more money out of particular areas. Sponsorship obviously is not one as we just talked about with the rock and uh, the footwear last weekend, but I mean, it, it's getting tough, harder to get the same type of, of boost in revenue. It is. Um, they also are saying, you know, uh, Ari did say that he, UFC works with another company to dynamically P price its ticket, uh, prices. So that's good for, as, as Paul Giff points out, that's good for the revenue, but not if you like cheaper tickets. Um, so it's a smart move. It's what you should do. You should dynamically price based on various factors and work with the company to do that. But that's also part of the reason you're just seeing some outrageous ticket bumps since the pandemic. Uh, it's not just all inflation. It's not whatever. I mean, they're they're working to, to maximize their profit here. It's a smart call, but it hurts if you're trying to go to an event. It really does. I mean, again, some of the ticket prices are mind boggling. For here in Austin, um, I got extremely lucky in terms of, of my particular um, viewing of it. But, you know, ticket prices up there were were out of control compared to what they were just, you know, three, four years ago with well, the last time that they were in town. Um, pretty nuts. Uh, it's, But if you can make money off of it, if you're selling out, doesn't matter. They will continue to do it until they cannot sell out. Once there's a drop-off where people aren't buying as many tickets, then they're going to look at lowering. But right now, all of the financials tell them to dynamically price and do what they got to do to maximize profit. So smart. Um, those are the main comments from Ari as it pertains to the UFC. But the bigger picture here is, again, Emmanuel is aggressively going after building out that ecosystem and maximizing profit. And that's not going to slow down anytime soon. Uh, should we hit a recession? Should the economy kind of go bonkers? Then you're in different waters, so to speak. But expect Endeavor to continue being aggressive as long as they can, especially with interest rates rising. Right, key inflation measure came out. Looks like inflation rose a little bit more than was expected. Fed will continue to raise interest rates. That's going to put more pressure on Endeavor, who has forty percent of their debt at variable interest rates. So expect them to squeeze every penny that they possibly can out of this scenario. All right, we're going to quickly go through our quick hit section here. Uh, first up in the quick hits, we've got Hasbullah signing a five-year deal with the UFC to become a brand ambassador. Not shocking given his connections um, and, and kind of how he's blown up on MMA Twitter as well as even beyond MMA Twitter and the viral world. Makes a lot of sense that he'd be an ambassador in the, the Dagestani region, Um he is making a lot of money, right? Uh, the report mentioned he's making more than a lot of fighters, which has got to sting for <laughs> for a lot of the fighters. But it's not a bad move by the UFC. That is a you know viral sensation who continues to pick up fans and be a big name. Uh, meet with a lot of MMA guys, right? He got Conor McGregor's attention. He was talking about 
kicking him and all this other garbage, which is crazy. But he's he's stirring up enough people in the right ways that UFC thinks it makes sense to have him be an ambassador, do content for him. Not a bad call. That is someone who can cross over into the casual mainstream and probably attract some people to watch or at least capture the attention for the advertisements for the casual viewer. And that's huge. What his conversion rate will actually be to get new customers and actually add profit. Very hard to track that, very hard to know, but I'm not surprised and I feel like it's a good signing in terms of signing a new ambassador for the for the promotion. Uh, next up, we've got the PFL making a ton of signings, uh, big name signings recently. You obviously had Shane Burgos, but adding to the list, you get uh, Muhammad Ali's grandson, you get Marlon Moraes, who's coming out of retirement and is now going to fight in the featherweight division, and you get Thiago Santos, who not that long ago fought John Jones for the belt uh, going over the PFL. Makes sense in a lot of ways. Again, these are bigger names. They're probably commanding a bigger price, though. And this is the same strategy we've seen Bellator use in the past, right? This was Bellator's original strategy. Get a bunch of, um, I mean, not their original, original strategy, but what became their most recent strategy, right? Before the CBS Viacom merger. It was find well-known UFC names, And even though they're past their prime or even though maybe they're not quite a champion or they're in that contender range or what have you, go and sign them. That used to be Bellator's MO. Every former UFC vet under the sun would go to Bellator, right? And now we are seeing this more and more in both PFL and a little bit in one, although less so. One has kind of pulled back on that measure as well. Um, But PFL now is, is in that phase of we need to bring in names, Obviously, they've gotten some higher ratings and like what they're seeing out of uh, signing Roy McDonald and Anthony Pettis, especially this season as compared to uh, the previous one, right? And with uh, Rory retiring and them looking to you know continue bringing in more name value to get more eyes on their product, especially from taking away and or converting the UFC fan base, this will help do that hypothetically, right? If you're a diehard UFC fan, you're probably not watching other promotions, but let's say you're a diehard UFC fan that's also a diehard uh, Marlon Marais fan or a Thiago Santos fan. You thought he beat John Jones. You're a huge fan of his earlier exciting fights, all that stuff, and all of a sudden you see he's over in PFL. Well, you might check out PFL and see how he does, right? And that's the whole purpose is just to get them to watch. Ideally, they convert, and again, it's a funnel, so you get 100 people watching uh, or 100 fans maybe of Thiago, maybe 20 actually watch and maybe five only become diehard PFL fans, but that's that's how it goes. It's all about volume when it comes to customer conversion. So not surprising they're doing this and they're in this phase. Expect more UFC signings. Muhammad Ali's uh, grandson, again, that's a bigger name. He'll come in with some hype on him because of his relation to Muhammad Ali. Makes sense. Uh, lastly, we've got to talk about one championship announcing they're going to do 52 events a week or a week, sorry, a year, a week. That would be wild. Uh, at the Lumpany, I believe that is, uh, Muay Thai Stadium. It's going to be Muay Thai heavy. There will be some regular cards, it sounds like, and some mixed MMA bouts, uh, kickboxing bouts, things of that nature. But big, big move in terms of, one, highlighting the sport of Muay Thai and showing 
and trying to be kind of a leader in Muay Thai, right? Um, it's not surprising. And I think it makes a lot of sense in that you've got a bunch of people that still don't like watching fights because they're like, oh, I don't like it when the guys are wrestling. It looks like they're hugging, blah, blah, blah. Okay, whatever. Muay Thai doesn't have any of that, right? You have your clinches. You you still, depending on the rule set, have elbows. You have the kicks. You have all of the stand-up that you love in MMA. Why not highlight that and kind of be a first mover in that market because the UFC is not trying to go there. Bellator abandoned Bellator kickboxing and trying to go there. Why not do that? Why not try and elevate that side of the sport? Uh, again, gives you goodwill. It's a famous Muay Thai stadium, so it's it's a big deal for the hardcores. I've seen a lot of hardcore fans be excited about it. it makes sense. Makes a lot of sense to do this. So it's a smart call. How successful it will be in terms of costs versus revenue, we'll have to wait and see. But I think it makes sense given one's position in both the MMA and overall combat sports world. And it gives them an opportunity to kind of diversify their product uh, while still capturing and staying within their main target demographics and customers. So makes a lot of sense. Let me know if I missed any quick hits on this uh, week, but I think those were the big ones. But feel free to let me know your thoughts or if I missed any. All right, last thing we're going to talk about today is that Triller is apparently done with combat sports. So uh, this comes from Dan Raphael, who is a very notable um, boxing journalist, has won an award for it back in 2013. Um, but, uh, you know, good source. And I'm not a boxing guy, but, you know, vetted him out, talked to a couple people, only hear good things. So definitely trust him on this. But apparently, Triller has decided to back out of the combat sports business. It's not super shocking, right? We talked, I think it was three weeks ago, four at this point. It's hard to keep track of time. Um, we talked about how Triller was in a weird spot, how they were looking to do a SPAC. It didn't work out. So then they were doing an IPO and they lowered the valuation when they moved to an IPO focus, uh, how they were late with payments, things of that nature. I mean, according to... Raphael, they just very recently paid off people um, who finally got paid quite a bit after they were supposed to, right? And we also talked about how Sony was still suing them. There's a lot of non-payment for the bigger names, the bigger companies, but even then, they still haven't paid and apparently have stiffed a lot of uh, TV production people and all this other stuff, according to Raphael. That's bad, right? That's not good. When you when you're not paying people on time, it can be okay, especially if you're a newer company, right? I've seen a lot of startups and a lot of smaller companies do this, where they don't really pay on time as they should. Um, but when you're not paying a lot of people on time and bigger names, right? Some that are having to sue you, and then you're saying, "Oh, it's an issue. I'm sorry. Like it's a big misunderstanding." It's it's a very terrible look right? Uh, it's, it's a pretty awful, awful look. Now, that being said, right, their foray into combat sports was definitely unique. It definitely elevated their name quite a bit to get to this level where they're doing an IPO. Um, if you don't have the Jake Paul, Ben Askren fight, and then the, uh, you know, musical performances and all that, the, the Mike Tyson return, right? If you don't have the Mike Tyson return, Triller is, is, I think a much smaller name than it is now. It's still got verses and all that other stuff, but it's, it's much smaller 
than what they're currently valued at or valuing themselves at rather. So it's, it's sad to see in some ways because they did push the envelopes quite a bit, but you also saw from a, a untrained eye, you could see a lot of issues and where they might run into some spending problems, right? You had the slap fight stuff with Ric Flair um, and Pete Davidson. You had Metallica, open and close the triad combat stuff, which ended up just being kind of a Metallica concert, which is nuts. The amount of money they probably got paid, the amount of people getting paid six, seven figures to fight. Right. I mean, we're talking, we're talking, we hear talking big names, but who, you know, honestly shouldn't be fighting in some cases, right. Evander Holyfield versus Vitor Belfort being one of the, one of the biggest uh, uh, issues there. I mean, it, it's nuts. Frank Beer getting paid as much as he, he did. Um, and then you had real boxers you, where they got involved. You had the the Crawford. Oh, man, that whole thing. Um, or the Lombosa, right? Crawford Lombosa, I believe that was the fight where it just fell apart because they bid on the site fees and they messed up a bunch of stuff, ended up bringing the contracts, had to just lose $1.2 million because they couldn't actually host the fight like they were supposed to. It's nuts. Uh, There's a great thread out there on Twitter where they talk about the history of combat sports and the ridiculousness of it for Triller. It is not surprising that they've decided to back out of it. It could not have been revenue generating its biggest value to the company is it did elevate its name quite a bit. It probably brought more investors and more attention to it than other, otherwise they would have achieved. Um, and people not just in the music world, but then the boxing and entertainment world got involved. Is it worth it? Well, we'll see what happens with the IPO, but it may have been just in terms of the marketing return that was given there, but there was no way that that division was in the black with the amount of money that they were spending uh, and with the, the names that they got. There is absolutely no way that Triller Combat Sports were turning a profit. They almost certainly were just adding red and red and red <laughs> to the ledger, um, just debt piling up as, as it speaks to them not paying people back, right? Um, and we've seen companies do this before. There are plenty of companies that do very revenue loss heavy things just to build their name and get the right investors involved. And we've seen it in combat sports. We, we've seen it with multiple promotions who are not turning a profit right now, but are spending wildly in order to get their name out there to get more hype and to get further investment or new investors involved, right? That's, that's the startup way. So it, there's not much more to say on the topic. Um, I don't have a lot more to discuss other than it's been a wild ride. And it is a little bit sad because I was hoping there'd be more just outright ridiculousness. But the business mindset here, again, is all about marketing. It's it's a fire fest type thing, not in the same way where it's like a fraud and it doesn't work and all that stuff. But it's a, you know, Firefest paid, I don't know how many influencers to post on Instagram and all this other stuff. It was going to be amazing and all this stuff. 
before they had the infrastructure set up and they had the lineup set up and everything like that. Um, it's the same type of deal. You paid to have Jake Paul knock out Ben Askren and kind of elevate Jake Paul's career to have Mike Tyson fight um, and draw more eyeballs probably than to Triller and know what the name Triller is than ever before. Um, have several different events. Uh, I don't think Triad probably paid off for them nearly as much as say uh, Mike Tyson or Jake Paul, but you know, getting their name out there and it did, it worked. I wouldn't really know about Triller without it. And, and then they acquired BKFC, which that's more of a legitimate promotion, right? That probably does turn a small profit or if it's losing uh, revenues and in, in is in the red, it's, it's probably not terrible. It's definitely not at the same level we've seen other, uh, other events that Triller hosts do. Um, so, I mean, again, it, it's all about building the name and they, I'm sure it contributed to them getting bigger investors involved and getting the IPO and, and SPAC discussions going. And that's what you got to do sometimes. Sometimes you got to just spend wildly until you get the right people and investors involved and then you end up making a profit and you can turn it around, Right. Think about how many public companies that are still out there right now that have never shown a profit. Uh, Uber and Lyft, biggest example of this. They are big names. They have stock, all this stuff. They are losing money and have lost money pretty much in the entirety of their existence. But their shareholders and their executives and all the people that started Uber and Lyft are probably very wealthy and happy, right? That's, that's how it works. Start a company, get an idea, get the marketing behind it, get everybody hyped up and invested in it, and then you get paid. That's kind of how it works. So, you know, final send-off to Triller, but uh, it was fun while it lasted. Maybe they'll come back to it, right, if they actually turn a profit or they can find a way to be prof- profitable enough to do it, but I, I don't foresee it. I think this is the last time we see Triller in the space, and it was a wild, chaotic ride. I will, uh, I will tell you that. All right, that wraps it up for today's Five Business Podcast. Appreciate everybody listening. If you're watching on YouTube, hit the like, subscribe, bell notification, all of that as well. Uh, if you're listening on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, what have you, always appreciate you guys. Feel free to send any comments my way through YouTube, through the article on Dog, through me at Twitter at AllDayOJ. Love you guys as always. And until next time, get money.